They manipulate language to distort the true meaning of words so that we forget the truth and first principles. They tell us you can have it all when reality demands choices and sacrifice. They want to erase certain aspects of history so we forget our true identities replaced by ego identifications. They control ideas and information in the vain attempt to mold people to their ideology. They encourage moral relativism to excuse their crimes, obfuscate natural law and objective morality. They invert truth by encouraging us to believe that good is evil, black is white. They bombard us with fear and anxiety to propagate the false belief that there is nothing we can do to affect change. Alright, so hello everyone and welcome back to another episode here on The Sordid Skeptics, where we're going to do a little breakdown of a movie called They Live. You all set, Tim? We have come here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and we're all out of bubblegum. They Live is a cult classic from 1988, directed by John Carpenter, starring the wrestler Rowdy Rowdy Piper, who is also, or was a Canadian. So, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen this movie yet, you may want to before listening any further. In its core essence, They Live is the journey of the awakening of consciousness to the mass inverted deception of commercial and political propaganda by satanic elitists. And most importantly, it's not just knowing this, knowing the truth, but acting in the form of standing up for the truth, justice, freedom, and making the ultimate sacrifice for the love of humanity. So we thought we'd go over this movie because it seems to be particularly prescient in today's particular cultural climate. So let's just start with a brief overview of how our story begins. So They Live begins with the title of the movie appearing on a large wall of graffiti in the overpass of a train yard surrounded by a cartoonish city with a large cross overlooking the city. Now the cross is a symbol with multiple meanings, pain, healing, structure, connecting the lower with the heights of the divinity. But in this case, since it's at the top of the city, it could be similar to the all-seeing eye of God with, with its vision and attention towards oncoming danger. And with care and providence, it seeks to protect or act as a symbol to seek and protect, enlighten the people, while churches have acted as a sanctuary, a last stand against totalitarianism and fascism throughout history. So we are then introduced to our hero, John Natta, who is a blue-collar drifter with a backpack of tools who was laid off in Denver, Colorado, and decides to find work in Los Angeles. So Natta, which actually means zero, interestingly enough, uh, and who's actually, he never actually says his name throughout the entire movie. Uh, he may look like the everyman archetype, but as this movie progresses, it's quite clear that he's a seemingly ordinary individual thrust into an extraordinary situation. But like many things in the movie, our initial perceptions don't match up to the deeper truth. He first goes to the employment office, but doesn't land a job. Then he walks to a park where a blind black street preacher is on a classic apocalyptic rant explaining how our leaders have been corrupted and how they have blinded us to the truth of our slavery. 
Nada watches over and moves on as the police arrive on the preacher. And just to note, an apocalypse means a revelation or to reveal and uncover. So do you think we are living in apocalyptic times? Well, I think it's probably about as close as we've ever been, to be honest. I mean, I know there's a lot of revealing and uncovering going on now, but again, it does seem to be largely ignored whenever we hear one of these rather interesting truths, always supplanted by the latest distraction or Netflix series that we can just (laughs) use to ignore all these things with. So Nada finds himself work at a construction site where he meets Frank, a uh, black man whose family lives in Michigan. So Frank leads Nada to Justiceville, which is a homeless tent city where he meets Gilbert, one of the leaders and organizers there. So later that night, as Nat is watching TV with a group, it's suddenly interrupted. Uh, well, the programming on TV is interrupted by an older man, I think like the scientist that kind of looks like Socrates, and he explains the following. He says, Our impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. The movement was begun eight months ago by a small group of scientists who discovered, quite by accident that the poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, to others. We are focused only on our own gain. Please understand, they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep. Keep us selfish. Keep us sedated. Well, it certainly sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I think we have been programmed to be stuck into a kind of fight-or-flight um kind of state of consciousness at Mm -hmm. least when covid began yeah because we didn't know what we were dealing with exactly and i thought like the whole bottom was going to fall out and in some ways it has but thankfully our food supply didn't you know run out let's say or that wasn't completely interrupted yeah not yet not yet i mean thankfully i mean i'm sure that's uh something that's possible down the road but as of right now we're uh we're not starving yet, but again, that seems to be uh, one of the last things to go, I'm sure. Because, I mean, imagine what would happen if the food supply were be interrupted. There would immediately be riots in the streets, right? Mm-hmm. People aren't just going to sit down and starve to death. But I think it's sort of like that boiled frog kind of situation where if you slowly take away people's livelihood, replace it with subsidies, people kind of get used to that after mm. a while. So by the time the food eventually does run out, people are already going to be so pacified by the state that they're not going to be able to rise up because all they have to do is promise, you know, anybody who doesn't rise up will get food. Mm-hmm. You know? So it promotes, yeah, a certain... Yeah, but you don't start that way, right? You, you start by, you know, cutting off non-essential services and then right. making the only essential services those provided by the government. Those that they consider. They're those that they consider Not essential, essential, which is obviously the services provided by them. <laughs> no, no conflict of interest there or anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and the problem is when you're, you know, when you're kept in this survival fight or flight, it's, um, 
it disables in a way your ability to think and reflect more deeply about what the bigger I think issues are and the larger context of this whole COVID problem, which well, right, is a political, spiritual, psychological, economic issue, right? Mm-hmm. So, after the interruption finishes, a character known as the Drifter gets angry at the interruption, which is a typical reaction to someone speaking the truth, even more so in the present reality, which is, you know, a common reaction even more so in the present reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nada notices the black street preacher and Gilbert are arguing outside a church nearby, and they proceed to go inside. So the next day, another interruption occurs, but it doesn't last very long as Cable News Network 54 are able to minimize it quickly. Then Nada notices Gilbert going into the church again. But this time, Nada decides to investigate the inside of the church and finds a chemical laboratory set up inside along with writing on the wall that says, They live, we sleep. Also, there's choir, a choir music recording playing as a means of deception. Nada can hear arguing in another room, which is Gilbert arguing against the strategy of distributing the Hoffman lenses on the street. Now, um, it's interesting to note Dr. Albert Hoffman was known as the grandfather of the acid generation who had a laboratory in Switzerland. And as we go more into the plot of the movie, this will make more sense as it's revealed. So, as Nada is listening to the argue, he trips over a dolly and breaks through a storage compartment full of cardboard boxes. As he closes the compartment, Gilbert, in the background, insists we need to find new, strong people to work with. Nada is then confronted by the blind street preacher who touches Nada's face and hands and says, Here, it's the revolution. Let me show you. Nada anxiously leaves in a hurry as the preacher explains, you'll be back. You'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I thought that was uh, kind of interesting because it's like they knew right away, you know, this was going to be the guy that helps us out. But obviously in any he- archetypal hero's journey, the hero can't really be, you know, gung-ho about accepting that burden and responsibility yeah. right away because then you don't really have any growth in the character and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's no struggle. So he rejects the call initially, which yep. is typically yeah, part of the hero's journey. So, uh, after Nada goes back outside, he borrows some binoculars from a teen to watch Gilbert, who is packing boxes into a car, and then they notice police helicopters flying by and spying on them. So, Frank insists it's none of their business by saying, look, I got a job now, and I plan on keeping it. I'm walking the white line all the time. You don't bother nobody, nobody bothers me. You better start doing the same. And then our hero Nada responds with the classic line, white line's in the middle of the road. That's the worst place to drive. Which always stood out to me as being a really cool line, right? Because you, you don't want to be a fencer. You don't want to be sitting in the middle of the road because, you know, then you're going to have traffic coming at you from both directions, which yeah. which isn't ideal. It's uh, usually a little bit better to just pick a damn lane. Exactly. Yeah, this is one of my favorite lines, too, because it hints at Nada's character and the importance of when the chips fall. Okay, we got to pick a side here. Yeah. So later that night, helicopters are still flying by, and this time followed by police cruisers and bulldozers, which demolish Justiceville in pure authoritarian fashion. Um, Nada man- while all this chaos is happening, Nada manages to save the same teenage boy who had the binoculars, 
and he leads them to safety. Now, here, Nada demonstrates some very key virtues in that he was skeptical about Gilbert's and was able to detect something that wasn't adding up with him. Because before, when he asked Gilbert about um, the choir music happening at 4 a.m., Gilbert replies, oh, we've got a lot of food to make, right? And then, so he, in a way, Nada exemplifies the qualities of the exploratory hero going into the unknown by being curious enough to investigate the activities happening in the church. And he shows compassion by reaching out to the teen during the authoritarian demolition and instead of focusing solely on his own survival, mm -hmm. he helps someone else. So the next day, Nada returns to the church, kicks in the secret door and takes one of the boxes with him. He goes to an alleyway in the city and discovers the big secret, which were a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. So he walks down the street and he puts the glasses on, and everything turns black and white, while the hidden messages on billboards, signs, and magazines are revealed, such as Obey, Marry and Reproduce, No Independent Thought, Consume, Buy, Stay Asleep, Do Not Question Authority, and of course the dollar bills say, This is your God. So I found that uh, what became immediately apparent to the audience would be, okay, now he's actually seeing through all the nonsense and the lies and the propaganda and seeing everything in a very sterile way for what it actually is. So I think it also plays in a lot of that 80s and 90s consumerism stuff, whereas mm -hmm. now we'd probably have a lot, you know, more important things to worry about, like authoritarianism and the totalitarian takeover of all Western countries. But back then it was all about, you know, overconsumption is bad and it's like okay yeah yeah we get that but mm -hmm. we kind of have bigger problems now so yeah it's not exactly like this information on media is exactly new or anything there's been plenty like written about it on kind of like the hidden sexual connotations and meanings and like advertisements and mm -hmm. and things like that but um but yeah, I think it's meant to be just a very, yeah, uh, straightforward and in a way kind of extreme. And one can, one could even argue that he's kind of taken on like an ideological conspiracy theory kind of uh, viewpoint through that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it kind of negates the whole battle of good and evil if you, if you go that route as well. But continuing on... Um, as he's looking, he goes to a, a magazine uh, stand and he sees an old white affluent man who is revealed to have to be a skull-faced ghoul who asks, what's your problem? But the magazine vendor is just a regular person. So here's where we see that the lenses aren't turning everybody into mm -hmm. these ghouls. There's only certain people. Yeah who kind of have that, that change on their face. And then you'll see it later throughout the movie where certain examples of people that have it and certain people that don't. Yeah. So he then walks into a flower shop where there's a newscaster, who of course has that ghoul face, and of course saying, hey, it's a new morning in America. We have faith in our leaders. We're optimistic as to what uh, becomes of it all. It really boils down to our ability to accept. We don't need pessimism. There are no limits. So this is exactly the opposite of what revolutionaries were saying during their broadcast interruptions. So now you see that the two sides of the narrative. One is saying, hey, 
guys, things aren't going well. We're all being controlled. We're just a bunch of livestock out here for these elites. And then you have the representatives of the elites saying, no, no, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it, guys. Just go back to obedience and consumption. Yep. Don't worry about anything. Just comply. Go about your merry way. There's no battle of good and evil. No, that's all just in Hollywood movies. Yep. <laughs> so at this point, we've discovered some important themes and symbols. So one very key theme of They Live is the willful inversion of truth or perception by the rulers of our world used to control, confuse, demoralize, and deceive the masses. So a master maintains control of their slaves by inverting the meaning of symbols, concepts, ideas, morals, etc. The inversion of truth is also a key satanic tactic, which is clearly exemplified by the propagation of moral relativism, where any act, however destructive, is ju justified for whatever reason. Come on, guys, we can't judge anything. We can't have any standards for behavior. There, there can't be any of that. Otherwise, you know, you're just being a bigot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An anti-satanic bigot. <laughs> so, what are some of the ideas currently being propagated in our society, whether it's through the mainstream media, our education institutions, politicians, corporations? I mean, can you say, honestly say you have faith in our leaders? I would strongly argue that we have a massive leadership crisis, as many people, including ourselves, are repeatedly disappointed by many popular leaders of our time. Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, Xi Jinping, China's leader, Australia's Prime Minister, all who promote oppressive authoritarian or totalitarian policies, which have been even made... Uh, made even more clearer with the onset of COVID and how they've handled it. Yeah, was it New Zealand? They just locked down their entire country again for one case? One whole case. Yeah, so I mean, it's uh, it's becoming pretty evident that it's not about people's health, it's all about control. You know, otherwise you would probably see bans on cigarettes and alcohol and mandatory exercise and all these other things that we know are effective, but maybe they don't have as much lobbying behind them. So. And I find it quite amazing still that something with over a 99% survival rate has pretty much shut hot. down in the entire part of Western civilization. Yep. Yeah. And freedom of speech is viewed as hate speech and something that must be forcefully suppressed because in their view, bad ideas are equal to violence. I mean... And violence is just a difference of opinion when it's actually violence, right? It's, again, like you were saying, that inversion of truth, that distortion of what things are real and what are not, and, yeah, all the spin, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one great example is the deplatforming of Stefan Molyneux from YouTube, Twitter. Yeah, they kind of got rid of him, I think, uh, probably just caught a lot of that flack when he was too close over the target, right? Mm-hmm, Yeah. Now, I know he's kind of come back on and sort of said, well, how do you really know the deplatforming was good or bad? I mean, he's often said that it's one of the best things that's ever happened to him, right? Because now he doesn't feel as compelled to toe the line. They've already got rid of him, so now he can just sort of say whatever he wants because they can't keep kicking him off, especially if he's doing his own hosting and stuff like that. So Right, and he won't play the victim card. And I honestly think he's one of the greatest philosophers of our time. Because he does, even though he's an atheist, 
he does recognize the value of Christian Christianity in that it did universalize morals beyond tribalism, beyond in-group preference. Yeah, and I think he mentioned that it was because, you know, while everyone else was coming after him, uh, the Christian community was the only one that was kind of having his back, despite all the things he said about them all, all over all those years, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he comes to the uh, libertarian community and the atheists with like, hey, listen, here's, you know, a perfect proof for secular ethics. You know, what do you guys think? And they either ignored him or just kind of took a dump all over him. So he's like, okay, well, screw you guys then. And mm-hmm. it's uh, it's hard to see otherwise. But I think one of the, the reasons for that is that whenever you have some sort of universal morality, that often holds up a pretty uncomfortable mirror to a lot of people's conscience and they would prefer to just do away with that altogether so that they can continue to justify their own decisions to themselves. Yeah, and he's a big proponent of the non-aggression principle. He's one of the key figures that introduced that idea to me and helped me really understand its its value mm-hmm. in our society. And but yeah, I mean they just label him as uh when you when you google him, he he just comes up as a white nationalist or white supremacist as like the first thing and uh it's pretty sad, but, you know, if you actually listen to his podcasts and his call-in shows, he's done a lot of good in the world, more so than many, many other people can over the course of a lifetime. So yep. I think he's a very inspirational figure overall. And yeah, certainly sorted a lot of people out. Yeah, damn right. So continuing on, um, I think it's interesting they ask, uh, you know, is the quality of life we currently experience the best that we can do? Should we just accept? You know, idealists, inventors, rebels don't accept the way things are because they know reality can be continually improved upon, like our conscience, which is the mindset of a conscious, productive, divine individual. We know that there are many problems in our society, but it's I think it's a matter of choosing what to focus on and what's our own expertise would be good to, you know, Yeah, where where can you add value, right? Yeah, exactly. So these aliens, officially known as the ghouls, represented by the skull and crossbones, which are a symbol of death and inversion of perception. I think you use them uh, as a label for poison or toxins as Mm -hmm. well. So, yeah, an interesting use of symbology there. Uh, So the entire language from those that control must be inverted. If they say we are here to protect you... They are actually here saying uh, we're here to attack, attack, damage, abandon, desert, bash, destroy. All of these horrible things we're going to do to you. But again, when you invert that language, you know, it's all, you know, for your own good. Right? Yeah. And your safety in this case. (laughs) Gotta have that safety, Tim. You know, otherwise, how are we going to have freedom if we don't have safety? Exactly. And I I was listening to the Academy of Ideas and they were... The, the topic was about how when a, a society focused solely on safety, it really goes against the whole kind of exploratory hero risk-taking kind of archetype, right? That, you know, it just breeds um, a cowardness, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you always uh, prioritize safety over freedom, you're going to end up with neither one. Mm-hmm. Right? So I know we have mentioned Plato's allegory of the cave before because it seems to be pretty relevant all the time these days when you're trying to, I don't know, explain a different point of view to people, but they would prefer to instead just watch their shadow puppets on the wall because that's considerably more comfortable for them, right? Mm-hmm. So 
We're going to um, go through some excerpts. At the beginning of Book 7, Socrates describes the cave. So imagine human beings living in an underground den, which has a mouth open towards the light, reaching all along. Here they have been there from childhood, and their legs and necks chained so they cannot move. They can only see in front of them, being prevented by the chains from even turning around their heads. Above and behind them is a fire blazing in the distance. In between the fire and the prisoners, there's a raised staircase. And you'll see, if you look, a low wall built along the way, like a screen with marionette players, and over which they will show puppets. Then there are men passing along the wall, carrying all, all sorts of vessels and statues and figures of animals made of wood, stone, various materials which appear over the wall. So they only see their own shadows and the shadows of another. And what will naturally follow if the prisoners are released and disabused of their er error at first, when any of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn their neck around and walk and look towards the light, they will suffer sharp pains. The glare will distress them and they will suffer and they will be unable to see the realities of who in their former state he had seen the shadows then they conceived someone saying to him that what he saw before him was an illusion but now when he was approaching nearer to being and his eyes to turned towards real existence he has a clearer vision and what will be his reply and you may further imagine his instructor pointing to the objects as they pass and requiring him to name them will he not be perplexed Will he not fancy the shadows which he formerly saw truer than the objects which are now shown to him? And if he is compelled to look straight into the light, will he not have a pain in his eyes which will make him turn away to take refuge to the objects of vision which he can see, and which he can conceive to be in reality clearer than the things which are being shown? And suppose once more that he is reluctantly dragging up a steep and rugged ascent, and held fast until he is forced into the present of the son him, himself and is not likely to be pained and irritated. Yeah. So again, I think what this also talks about is that even if you were to present someone with the truth, there's still going to be that really strong longing for the former version of the truth that was once held, because it's just a lot more comfortable to hold on to what you already believe than it is mm -hmm. to try to accept something that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it can be difficult for our ego to admit we're wrong as well, right? And that in and of itself is painful. So I think in a way they illustrate, you know, the gradual process of, you know, of looking at a bright light and how that in and of itself can be a pain that's similar to, you know, learning learning the actual truth of something yeah it was like st like looking at the truth is like staring into the sun yeah you know you're you're in a lot of pain doing it it's really uncomfortable you worry how much it's going to damage you is it going to make you go blind so maybe i'll just go look in the other direction instead yeah and in the allegory of the cave the sun is supposed to yeah represent the ultimate good yeah because that would be what you'd see when you get out of the cave yeah. yeah, it's a good choice, Socrates. <laughs> and the fire is kind of like a lower form of light in comparison to the sun, which is, yeah, it's like actual source. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it as well, because, yeah, I guess 
the sun isn't technically fire. I mean, they're they're pretty close. You know, you got a, a burning gas or a gas going through nuclear fusion, but again, fire, fire. But it's a larger, I guess the idea is it's like a larger source, I guess, or a larger amount yeah, of I mean, light. It, yeah, it's just an interesting way of phrasing it. Yeah. I've never kind of heard of like, yeah, fire being like an imitation sun. It's like, oh, okay. So I guess yeah. pe- people with the fire and the shadows might be more comfortable than stepping out into the light mm-hmm. and seeing real objects for a change. Yeah. So the prison house or the cave is the world of sight. The light of the fire is the sun. So this is the journey towards the ascent of the soul into the intellectual world. In the world of knowledge, the idea of the good appears last of all and is seen only with an effort. And one scene is also inferred to be the universal author of all things, beautiful and right. Parent of light, Lord of light in this visible world and the immediate source of reason and truth in the intellectual and this is the power upon which we who would act rationally, either in public or private life, must always have our eyes fixed. So the power and capacity of learning exists in the soul already. And that just as the eye was able, unable to turn from darkness to light without the whole body, so too the instrument of knowledge can only be the movement of the whole soul to be turned from the world of becoming into the world of being and learn by degrees to endure the sight of being and of the brightest and best of being, or in other words, the good. So I believe the cave is meant to represent the human condition before one becomes a philosopher, a lover of truth, wisdom, and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Prisoners are chained to chairs and unable to turn their heads. They're staring at shadows projected on the wall, which they think represent what is real because they have nothing else to compare to. Now, the people behind the prisoners, the projectors, they choose the objects they used to cast the shadows and the stairway behind the projectors that lead outside to nature and the sun. So then only the philosopher is able to set themselves free. When they return to the cave, their eyes need to readjust to the dark. They will stumble around and look foolish to the prisoners who won't believe the philosopher who claims that the prisoners are trapped and that there is essentially another reality that exists. Yeah, so you'd probably come across as pretty crazy if you kind of stumbled back around and everyone doesn't know why you can't walk properly and you can't see properly and you can't think properly and all these other things, but... In reality, you've seen the truth, and when trying to expose it to other people, you end up just looking like a madman. So I think that's one of the things that's important to keep in mind when you're trying to speak truth to people, is you kind of have to do it gently and calmly and rationally, because otherwise you're probably going to come across as crazy and end up doing more harm to your cause than if you had just said nothing at all. Yeah, and I think it's it's something that maybe you can't give them all at once, because it may be too much to process so it's probably better to start with a solid foundation and kind of build it up from there perhaps mm-hmm. rather than kind of telling everything <laughs> all at once yeah if you can get people to agree on first principles that's a good place to start but mm-hmm. if you start going into all of the crazy things that are going on people are just going to end up tuning it out because like yeah. you said it's too much information it's too far gone from what they're used to experiencing so yeah so you start off slow you start off getting some agreement you know because the second it's you versus them it's game over you know yeah 
and you know you might learn something from them if they ask you a question and how to you know define or describe something as well mm -hmm. thus promoting the socratic dialogue right yeah so until the person is able to abstract and define rationally the idea of the good and unless he can run the gauntlet of all objections and is ready to disprove them not by appeals to opinion but with absolute truth never faltering at any step of the argument unless he can do all this you would say that he knows neither the idea of good nor any uh, other good other good that uh, he apprehends only uh, just the shadows of it if anything at all for that matter, which, uh, given by opinion, not science, uh, dreaming and slumbering in his life before he is well awake here. So, the only way out of the cave is through doubting the projections of shadows propagated by our cultural engineers, such as the media, state education, Hollywood, academia, all that stuff, right? So, back to the movie, as Nada calls out one of the ghouls, an older affluent woman, he stumbles back and falls... And then she speaks into her watch and says, I've got one that can see. So at that point, two cops try to apprehend Nada in the alleyway. Initially, they try to de-escalate the situation, saying this is a misunderstanding that you stumbled upon. But Nada's having none of it, fights back, steals a shotgun, and continues his journey. He ends up into a bank. Everyone notices him at the front standing proudly behind an American flag and utters the all-time classic line, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Yeah, like from episode three of Duke Nukem. Oh, yeah. A classic <laughs> line. Yeah, again. Shrapnel City. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I saw that uh, that scene in the game before seeing the movie, so I obviously didn't get the reference at that time. Neither but did I. I do think it's interesting when that woman uh, you know, calls him out and says, hey, I got one that can see. And like you were saying before with Molyneux, I think the same thing happened to him where people, or I guess the powers that be, so to speak, kind of decided, hey, we got one here that's figured it out. We got to shut him up. You mm -hmm. know, and, and I've seen that happen to a lot of creators. Once they get a little bit too close, they got to be shut down because you wouldn't want anyone hearing those controversial hate opinions. Right? God forbid you ask questions. No. That's bigoted. <laughs> so, Nada leaves and shoots down... A security bot that's floating in the sky. I guess a, uh, you know, a... Um, and this was way before drones. Prediction of drones, yeah. Right, <laughs> way before drones, but that's exactly what it looked like, which is hilarious. Yeah. So then he counters a cop who's actually human and shows mercy and refrains from taking him out, tells him to leave. Then he ends up in a parking lot and takes a woman named Holly Thompson for hosses and insists that they go to her home. And when they arrive, he tells her... It's like a drug. Wearing these glasses makes you high, but, oh, you come down hard. Yeah, which is interesting, because I didn't actually notice that the first time around when I watched the movie years ago, that the glasses actually kind of have a, I guess, intoxicating effect on people. So if, if, because that would probably answer the question, it's like, well, why wouldn't people just leave them on all the time? It's like, well, because they'll start to go crazy. Which yeah. I suppose is, is interesting. I mean, if you constantly expose yourself to too much of the truths of this world, it's probably a little bit more than any one person is really capable of handling. Because I mean, think about it, like as, you know, we, we were uh, growing up as a species thousands and thousands of years ago, you wouldn't really be able to access all of the horrible things happening all over the planet in the palm of your hand all the time, 24 hours a day. So we, we've never really evolved to be able to handle that much bad information or information period, right? It's just sort yeah. of beyond the scope of what we're capable of. So again, you kind of got to take it in doses. 
Yeah, exactly. Our ancestors were focused, and rightly so, on the immediate, you know, proximity of their survival. Yep, collect berries, to... avoid bear. <laughs> oh no, Afghanistan's collapsing. How am I going to think now? It's like, oh, and then he gets mauled by a bear. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's probably why they just avoided all that stuff back then. Yeah, but it's true. If you, you know, if you focus too much politics or watch too much news or, you know. It can kind of suck you in. Yeah, you know, it becomes and it can your, be pretty depressing yeah, sometimes. A little bit too, yeah. Where it's, but, which is why you got to balance it, I think, with more inspirational, you know, information and knowledge. Yeah, beauty, artwork, literature, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. the stuff that's worth fighting for. It'll uplift your spirit, yeah. Yeah. So... He tells Holly, the whole world's in trouble. They're all around us, and we never knew it. You can only see them with these special glasses. I swear to you, we're being controlled by these things. I don't know what they are or where they come from, but we got to stop them. He then tells her to take a look of the glasses, and she replies, If you want me to look through your sunglasses, I'll look through your sunglasses. If I don't see what you see, I'm going to see it anyway. And then he says, Yeah, you have it your way, huh? Then she says, It's not my way. It's your way. And now, I didn't really know what was meant by this, but we talked about it a bit more, and what did you think? Well, you can't really force somebody to see the truth by way of violence. You know what I mean? You can't take someone hostage and say, listen, you got to see things this way. And I mean, even if they agree with you, that's probably just to save their own life, obviously. Right? right. So going around and acting violently and trying to use violence and force and coercion and manipulation and all these other things to force people to see the truth, mm-hmm. it's never going to work. Yeah, I don't think Socrates would <laughs> No, well, I mean, that way. <laughs> no, he was always about that non-aggression principle, and he would just ask people questions, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the best way to deal with Socrates would just be to ignore him, right? But in this case, like, you wouldn't be able to take Socrates hostage and be like, listen... I forced you to see things this way. So he would just be like, why? <laughs> then he'd just go all Socratic dialogue on your ass. So, Well, yeah, you ignore him, but then they also, you know, tried him for corrupting the youth mm-hmm. and I think uh, impiety, not obeying the gods. or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or co- like corrupting that. the youth of the city and yeah. turning against the gods of yeah. the city. And Yeah, I guess back then gods were more municipal than, <laughs> than federal in those days. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, continuing on, she then asks to get a drink, and he lets her go. Then he asks, what does she do for work? And it turns out that she's the assistant program director of Cable 54. Nada then springs up and mentions how they're sending signals out of TV sets when she smashes a wine bottle over his head, and he smashes through a window and falls almost to his death out of her house at the top of a hill overlooking the city. Which is probably the expected response you know, if someone tells you they work for a cable station, like, they're sending out signals that are screwing up our minds. It's like, yeah, you're probably going to get wine bottled and thrown out a window. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those crazy things you should probably keep to yourself, right? After being taken hostage. <laughs> Obviously, yes. Uh, so, Nata returns to the construction site and talks to Frank, uh, the character from earlier, who wants nothing to do with him at all. Given what he's heard on the news and all the quote-unquote people he killed, uh, don't let nobody see you. I don't want anything to do with you. So, again, here's another interesting thing with this because later in the movie which we'll probably get into they they do get into a fight so frank eventually does try to use force to get this guy to see the truth and so we were kind of having a bit of trouble going back and forth as to what this really means in the movie and what we kind of came up with was the people that are almost pathologically indifferent to the truth they might still be reachable with a little bit of pressure but the people that have already 
totally bought into the narrative and they they benefit from it i mean logic and facts and reasoning aren't even going to come close to convincing these people they'll nod and be like yeah i'll see whatever you want me to see because they're like yeah but i don't care i mean i'm still benefiting from this so i'm going to go along with it yeah they're already past the point of being converted let's say whereas frank you know still has some good in him and he essentially gets recruited by by nada mm-hmm. and <clears throat> nada is able to win the fight and they then go to a hotel room to figure out their next move and um, this is another really kind of interesting monologue where we learn a bit more about nada and his childhood trauma and he says a long time ago things were different daddy took me to the river and told me about the power and the glory i was saved he changed when i was little he turned mean i ran away when i was 10. he tried to cut me once with a big old razor he held it up against my throat i said daddy please he kept moving back and forth like he was sawing down a tree frank replies maybe they've always been with us these things out there maybe they love it seeing us hate each other watching us kill each other off feeding on our old cold hearts Nada continues, I've got news for him. There's going to be hell to pay. I ain't daddy's little boy no more. Hmm. So I think, in a way, this monologue represents the full growth of Nada's character because he rejects his father's tyrannical abuse and cruelty. So he uses his anger as a fuel to fight for truth and freedom. He isn't a little boy helpless against evil but a real man who is willing to stand up for himself and humanity by performing the right moral action as he truly knows the difference between right and wrong so next frank and nada make it to the revolutionaries hideout where gilbert tells them the city's crawling with cops looking for us and most of the cops are human they've been told that we're commies trying to bring down the government and some of them are being recruited Creatures are trading wealth power. Frank asks if it's most are most joining up with them. He says, most of us just sell out right away. Then all of a sudden we get promoted. Our bank account gets bigger. We start buying new houses, cars. Perfect, isn't it? We'll do anything to be rich. In the background, the bearded scientist says, we are like a natural resource to them. Deplete the planet, move on to another. They want benign indifference. They want us drugged. We could be pets, we could be food, but all we really are is livestock. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point as well, because, you know, Molyneux brings up as well about how we're basically just free-range tax livestock in the overall, you know, huge arc of our story of indentured servitude to the state. It was realized that it's like, well, yeah, you could force people into labor camps, but they're not going to be quite as effective if you make the entire country a labor camp, Right and then you just keep a portion of people's income. Then people have the illusion that they're free without actually having to be free, and it cuts down on the costs of enforcement and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the illusion the illusion of freedom is a key yeah, tactic of the rulers. Yeah, so I mean, sure. even trying to wake people up to the idea that they're, you know, still indentured servants to the state, that's not an easy sell for a lot of people, right? Cause yeah, like, well, it's more abstract. A little bit, yeah. It's uh, like once you're in that fifth generational warfare kind of time and it's all just messaging and propaganda and all that kind of stuff convincing people that yeah they're actually prisoners not going to be an easy sell 
you know, but like, what about all these, what about North Korea? Aren't they prisoners? It's like, yeah, that's like more of a difference of a degree than kind, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gilbert tells John and Frank they need an assault unit, which Frank and Nada agreed to. Then they're shown the watches that enable the ghouls to disappear. Ghoul insists it's important to find out exactly where the signal is coming from. Holly Thompson then appears and claims that the KRDA signal is clear and is coming from somewhere else. She was about to tell Nada something when a SWAT team invades the hideout and shoots almost everyone down. Frank and Nada escape through an alleyway and activate the watch, which creates a portal, which leads them to an underground base. They hear a transmission saying Operation Steel Fist was a complete success and that they eliminated the terrorists. Then they enter a large ballroom, which looks like an end-of-year stockholder celebration mm-hmm. where the MC says, Our projections show that by the year 2025, not only America, but the entire planet will be under the protection and the dominion of this power alliance. The gains have been substantial, both for ourselves and for you, the human power elite. Yeah, it's like a big old great reset. You know? New world order. New yeah. world order. Yeah. And I've just received word that our forces have won a major victory. The underground terrorist network has been destroyed here on the West Coast. We're off crisis alert. The situation is normal again. But little did they know that our heroes were in the midst. (laughs) And then um, the the drifter from, from Justiceville, the one who was complaining about the interruption before, he appears in a tuxedo explaining that um, he didn't know Frank and Nada had been recruited and then proceeds to give them a tour. And then in the background, the MC says, money isn't the nicest thing in life. It's the only thing. So then the drifter tells them that they are at the backstage of the show. He then shows them a teleporter to another planet and says they got their act together. Believe you me. Lastly, he shows them the brains of the whole operation, where the satellite signal comes from, which goes all over the world. Nada asks to go into the TV studio. The guards ask for their authorization cards. Nada replies right here, with a gunshot. Of course. It's the 80s. (laughs) I got my ID right here. (laughs) After a quick interrogation, the drifter tells them the satellite is on the roof. Nada notices that Holly works there. The drifter tells them that they're making a big mistake, that it's just business. You still don't get it, do you boys? There ain't any countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything. The whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. That w- What's wrong with having a good for a change? They're going to let us have a good if we just help them. They're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of the good life too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. Frank replies, you do it to your own kind. The drifter asks, what's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Then a guard interrupts them and the drifter escapes with the teleporting watch. Now, I always found that whole scene to be super interesting about how the guy who, in the beginning of the film, his biggest inconvenience was having his TV show interrupted by what amounts to a commercial. (laughs) Right, and then of course this guy sells out, and he's like, "Well, you know, what's the harm? If there's always going to be winners, why not just you know sell out everything you believe in to join the winning team? You know, it's like that old Bugs Bunny shtick where he's just like, uh, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, Doc. 
you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, essentially, he's a moral relevi- relativist, rationalizing mm-hmm. the evil that's happening. He yeah, well, tells them straight up, there's no good guys. Yeah, so as long as he can benefit, right? Yeah. Then it's fine. As long as he can make money and, you know. Get a taste of that good life. And yeah. walk around in a tuxedo and give tours. Yeah, and give tours to people and feel all self-important. Then, yeah, what, what does it matter what you're, you're yeah. giving up in exchange, right? Yeah. And this is a real type of person. Mm-hmm. So, Nada and Frank blast their way through the TV studio, taking out guards. They meet up with Holly, but just as they're about to make it onto the roof, she shoots Frank. Yeah, right in the back of the head. Another 80s trope. Yeah. On the rooftop, just as Nada reaches the satellite, Holly holds a pistol up to Nada. She says, don't do it. Don't interfere. You can't win. A helicopter shines its searchlight on Nada. So the game is up, basically. They got him. Yeah, and she's still, you know, trying in a way to program him and convince him that there's no way out. Nada drops his gun and she says, come inside with me. And could be a kind of a seductive thing, perhaps. But Mm -hmm. as he's about to surrender, he pulls out a small pistol in his sleeve and shoots Holly. And then he utters, fuck it, and shoots the main power source to the satellite. A giant explosion follows, but the helicopter shoots Nada. As he's laying on the ground, Nada gives the corporate cop ghouls the middle finger then the truth is revealed to everyone who can see the ghouls without the glasses now. And screams of horror follow. The end. Yeah. So at the end of the movie, you all basically get to see what happens when all these people are revealed. And it doesn't really go much farther than that. You just mm. see a few reveals of people finally seeing these people for what they are. And then it just kind of closes off after that. So you don't really know what the outcome of the truth is going to be. You know, which mm. I think is an important, uh, important facet, right? Because... You know, we, we we live with the lies that we have right now. And once those lies are absolved, how are people actually going to react to the world as it truly is? It's probably going to be pretty terrifying for a lot of people, right? And painful, as demonstrated in the allegory of the cave. Yep. And, yeah, so they kind of, and in a sense, too, they kind of leave it up to, you know, the viewer to imagine, yeah, what would happen. And yeah, so all, overall, a, a pretty solid movie. Definitely. I mean, it's uh, wrapped up as a, presented as an 80s action flick, and uh, there is a decent amount of it, but it's kind of like an 80s version of The Matrix. A little bit, yeah. In a sense, right? And it's fun. It's, uh, you know, some people would 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 kind of write it off as like a corny, um, but it is semi-self-aware as well, and... I think that it has some pretty important messages as well, which we will um, go over in a bit. Now, I just, we wanted to talk a bit about courage, which is an essential virtue, I think, that Nada demonstrates. And this is coming from a book called Transcending the Levels of Consciousness by David Hawkins. So he describes that at the level of courage, spiritual energy profoundly alters the experience of self and others. Therefore, it is the level of onset of empowerment, the zone of exploration, accomplishment, fortitude, determination. At the lower levels of consciousness, the world is seen as hopeless, sad, frightening, tempting, or frustrating. But at the level of courage, life is seen as exciting, challenging, and stimulating. 
there is energy to learn uh, new job skills therefore growth and education are attainable goals there's the capacity to face fears or character defects and to grow despite um, uh, crippling anxiety people at this level put back into the world as much as they take from it crossing over to courage is the most critical step in the evolution of human consciousness and its concordant quality of both inner and outer life the development of the capacity to align with the recognized truth rather than personal gain clearly separates truth from falsehood the decisive choice to take this step is that of accepting responsibility and being accountable for one's decisions and actions. This also includes a shift from being dominated by primitive emotions, which become attenuated by intelligence and verifiable validity, rather than self-serving emotionality that results in fallacious and distorted reasoning. Thus, courage represents conquering the fear of loss of gain, as well as the replacement by more long-term rewards of truth. So at the level of courage, there is an intuitive acceptance of the truth of accountability as a spiritual and social reality. This is accompanied by an emergence of awareness of responsibility for the destiny of one's own soul and not just for the body and the satisfaction of the ego. Truth is now seen as an ally instead of an enemy. Alignment with truth rather than gain brings strength, self-respect, and true empowerment rather than ego inflation. The dictum... What gains a man to win the world, but lose the soul? Now becomes an axiom that guides decisions and the choices of options. Courage brings inner confidence and a greater sense of personal power because it is not dependent on external factors or results. To choose integrity and self-honesty is self-rewarding and reinforcing. There is a greater sense of inner freedom due to relief from guilt and fear that subtly accompanies all violations of truth. For on the unconscious level, the spirit knows that when the ego is lying and violating premises that operate out of conscious awareness. This emanates from an archetype in the collective unconscious as described by Carl Jung. The accumulation of unconscious spiritual debt, sometimes called karma, progressively pulls down the conscience of those who violate truth. They then have to compensate by defensive pride, anger, guilt, shame, and the fear of ultimate divine judgment. So the energy of consciousness is aligned with the integrity of reason, and therefore distorted precautions of rhetoric are rejected as being weak and faulty. With this forward step in evolution, there is a major diminution of emotionality and wishful fantasy life therefore becomes less dramatized and the transitory payoff of negative ego positions loses their appeal because they are now devoid of reward in return there's greater equanimity and overall feeling of security that can only be acquired by adherence to inner honesty by trial and error it discovered that the cost of compromise is not worth the risk to the confidence which integrity becomes accustomed so in a way he's saying that i think courage is self-serving in a positive way but it also serves others as well Mm -hmm. um and you know this is i think another reason why we love superhero movies we're watching courageous acts you know we're watching people 
not just serve themselves, but serving a greater good. Yeah, and I think if the story is good enough, that makes a lot of sense. But I think on the flip side of that, it also probably shows you why superhero movies are so, I don't know, such superficial cotton candy when it comes to the hero's journey. Because if you have someone that's, I don't know, say, invulnerable, for example, them going and doing something dangerous doesn't quite have the same stakes as somebody that actually has skin in the game. Yeah, the Superman problem. The Superman problem, right? And this is why they had to introduce Kryptonite into the Superman universe uh, back in the 50s, I think it was, because eventually the stories became less and less popular because, well, Superman basically has all the superpowers. He has no weaknesses. He's invulnerable. So it's like, okay, so what are the stakes here? It's like, oh, wow, he, he saved somebody from falling off Niagara Falls. It's like, well, he can fly and he can't drown and he's invulnerable, so... I guess it's good that he was here. Like, yeah, so he's got like nothing to lose. Right. So if he has if you the courage kind of necessitates that, you know, if if you're invulnerable and doing something daring isn't all that daring because you don't really have any any stakes, right? Mhm. Well said. So, we'd like to ask why does they live still matter? Currently there has been a rise in authoritarianism in the West which has been dialed up by the CCP virus, as seen by the actions and policies of various governments, institutions, mainstream media, and police forces. This phenomenon known as COVID-19 at its roots, in its essential form, is about fear, power, control, and tyranny. They live is about freedom, choice, spirituality, rebellion against tyranny. In 2021, we are distracted much more beyond the television sets as depicted in the film, because we all carry a mini-TV that provides an endless amount of distractions, entertainment, propaganda. All tailor-made for our own preferences, as as the algorithms learn over time. That's right. Smartphones act as marketing devices which listen to our conversations for keywords to be implemented in ads we will watch soon after. Most of the population, around... 85%, it's been written, is still asleep in a lower state of consciousness and thus unaware of the efforts and effects of advertising, political systems, but most importantly, mind control. Our society is addicted to unreality, illusion, while getting caught up in despair, guilt, fear, apathy, anger, pride, hate, vanity, egotistical positionalities, which leads to more division, and enslavement you know divide and conquer is how rulers keep their power yeah i think john nada exemplifies thinking reason reflection courage willingness a sense of humor self-shadow integration freedom love morality and the pursuit of truth justice and the ability to detect falsehoods with healthy skepticism This all leads up to the ultimate sacrifice of his own life by destroying the satellite and thus lifting the veil of the mass solution for those for all to see, setting the world free and to the shock and horror of the civilians at the end. The film matters because it promotes both skepticism and the acceptance of truth and reality, the need to speak and seek the truth, reconciling anomalies, acknowledging but more importantly, acting on the choice to resist oppression, tyranny, mind control, while helping those outside our family. They Live highlights the need for faith and morality, Christianity, morality applied beyond self and in-group preference, accepting one's purpose instead of selling out or running away from destiny. And 
of course, the corruption of mainstream media, which is, you know, still a pretty big problem today. But yeah. CNN's ratings are thankfully continuing to fall. And oh yeah, because I mean, there's a there's a ton of like you know YouTube uh, personalities like Tim Pool who are regularly getting better yeah. ratings than the mainstream media. So obviously, they're desperate to try to shut down any voice that isn't their own. Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, you got good group discussions with nuance. Yeah, and if you guys are looking for a good breakdown of the corruption of the mainstream media, check out the documentary Hoaxed by Mike Cernovich. That's an excellent mm. movie that'll go through, uh, I mean, it's obviously a few years out of date at this point, but again, nothing really seems to change with the corruption of the media, so it's not like that really matters. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, check that out if you have a chance. And Stefan Molyneux talks about uh, Plato's yeah. allegory of the cave in it, right? Yeah, that's that's right at the end, so sorry about the no spoiler alert on that one, but <laughs> we already kind of spoiled it by describing it already, so <laughs> no loss there. So, essentially, it, um, They Live also, you know, highlights the necessity, you know, to find others who can quote-unquote see, who are, you know, aware of what's of what's happening so hopefully you don't go insane <laughs> on your own right and yeah you know because uh, with the problem with these lockdowns is that it has promoted isolation you know um conveniently enough right yeah um thankfully we do have you know the technology to keep in communication but but still it is a uh, i guess one of the ways you could find out if people can see or not is i guess see what their take is on the most recent headlines see how much mm skepticism that they can you know bring to bear on those those headlines and if they just kind of blindly accept it like butter stotch then i guess uh <laughs> you're probably not going to find a lot of vision there right it's a decent test yeah mm-hmm. um i think they live um asks is is ignorance bliss um you know and the value of the choice of liberty freedom truth-seeking and also, um, it mentions, I think it also mentions the importance of scientific innovation, which doesn't necessarily need to be divided from spirituality as the lab is set up within the church in the movie. Which was interesting because it's sort of like the church was the only one that was really trying to solve the problem of <laughs> people's blindness, which mm-hmm. which is and interesting. In a way, it acted as a, a sanctuary, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that they still had to pump out all the, uh, I guess, the choir music to trick the outside world into think that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing rather than fomenting the revolution. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So, uh, it's interesting to ask, what's the moral messaging of They Live? And I think that knowing the truth requires a new set of eyes or perception. Some sweet Ray-Ban sunglasses that'll do it for you. Oh, yeah. Might have just been a bit of a... You know Hollywood license there, but it's a movie. They have to, you know, have symbology and all that. <laughs> and funding. Yeah. Um, the essence of lower and higher states of consciousness. So you know, you've got the homeless people watching the transmission, getting angry um, at the um, the scientist who's you know giving the transmission, and then. You've got the higher states of consciousness demonstrated by the rebel group who are trying to strategize, you know, how to distribute the glasses, how to phone in the wake-up call to the world, um, take down the mainstream media, Mm -hmm. all that good stuff. Um, There's the value of 
of vision versus perception. So um, I, I think in this sense, having a clear vision, having um, an understanding of what could be, uh, what could be built in the future maybe versus um, just the, the shell, looking at the shell of something and just not penetrating the deeper uh, understanding of something. Right, so it's like sort of saying like, hey, we'll just solve poverty by printing money and giving it to people because that's at the root of poverty is people yeah. don't have money. It's like, okay, well then all you're going to do is breed dependence on the state. You're going to devalue the currency. You're going to do all these other things, but they don't think about that, right? Because it's yeah. too too shallow, too surface level. It's like, oh, what's the problem with poor people? It's like, well, they don't have money. It's like, okay, well, if we give them money, then we'll get rid of poor people. It assumes they'll be ultra-responsible with it. <laughs> right, but it's like, you might be you might be damning like 5% of them to, to death from a drug overdose because it's a lot of these, well, not a lot of a small minority of these mm. people, if they get money and they spend it on drugs, they could buy so much that it'll kill them. Right. You know, it's a small percentage of it, but I mean, uh, Peterson talked about that as well. He's like, some of my clinical clients when I was helping them, he's like, one of them told him that going to jail was the best thing that ever happened to him because it got him off the drugs. Yeah, and it's not like money's the same thing as acquiring skills. Yeah, or, or money is not the same thing as wealth either, mm. right? And you, you can give people money, but they're not going to generate wealth with it. Again, it goes back to that consumption problem. Mm -hmm. So, again, just you, you don't solve a problem like that by printing money or having more government control. You solve it by... Well, again, it's to sort of say it's one thing would be, you know, going against my previous point. So there's a lot of things that you could do to help the situation, but nothing you do is going to guarantee it because it has to be a choice that people make. And as you all know, we can't control other people's choices because that would be absurd. And free will exists. Yes, and free will exists. And we can't really get around that problem. So these are not problems that are going to be solved by fiat declaration. Right. So, I think the movie also, um, it's, it exemplifies that truth is the highest value to set people uh, free from illusion, accompanied by also sacrifice. Um, we mentioned the virtue of courage to explore, investigate, along with a balanced skepticism to understand beyond deceiving appearances. Um, the warning of dangers of satanic self-preserving competition and the perpetuation of fight or flight survival through the media to the masses. Um, I think it, it, um, basically promotes, um, the dangers of, you know, selling your soul or selling out, mm -hmm. selling your moral principles for luxury, vanity, comfort, ego satisfaction, um, and yes, an alien elite ruling class using propaganda to distract from the loss of freedom and morality, you know, we're, we're constantly throwing <clears throat> all sorts of different news stories while many other things are being planned behind closed doors. Um, and you know, uh, Holly Thompson, in a way, can be seen as, you know, the sellout slash shapeshifter, dangerous individual willing to deceive and inform, even uh, leading the SWAT team to the hideout. Um, yeah, because I guess the way it's presented in the movie is it kind of makes it seem like she betrays them at the end, but it seems more likely that she was a confederate the entire time. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, right. I mean, she was always on the quote uh, winning team the mm. whole time. Now, this leads us to the um, definition of propaganda. So, this was actually um, written by Edward Bernays. From he wrote a book called Propaganda in 1928, which is uh, which he defined as the mechanism by which ideas are disseminated on a large scale, and in an organized effort to spread a particular belief or doctrine. Now, there's a really good documentary I highly recommend everybody watch called Century of the Self, and it's essentially about how Edward Bernays, who is the nephew of Freud. He used the ideas of psychoanalysis and human nature in order, um, in order to um, uh, basically uh, create public relations and to use it to market products. So Edward Bernays was essentially responsible for women smoking. He basically created this event called Torches of Freedom where... He paid these middle, upper-class women to parade with cigarettes in New York City. And this basically made it acceptable for women to smoke cigarettes. Um, partly because um, he learned in psychoanalysis that the cigarette is a symbol for a man's penis. And that possessing the cigarette is a way of possessing that sexuality and of them getting getting their power back so the cigarette had a very powerful uh, effect on the collective unconscious and this event was uh, written about in newspapers and it basically made it acceptable for women to smoke in the late 1920s and it was a huge success and you know the the profits were record high and he was he was successful and he was part of many other kind of marketing campaigns um you know uh throughout the rest of the the decades following mm -hmm. so um when i looked at the de the definition of propaganda there was um i had a webster's new world dictionary from 1980 and the first definition was a committee of cardinals the congregation for propagation of the faith in charge of four missions the second definition is any systematic widespread dissemination or promotion of particular ideas, doctrines, practices, etc. to further one's cause or to damage an opposing one. But the third definition, this is really important, ideas, doctrines, allegations so spread now often used disparagingly to connotate deception or distortion. So therefore, it's intended. It's intentionally deceptive, right? So, in they live, there are commercials which encourage vanity, narcissism, shallowness. Um, for example, there's one commercial where this woman is saying, "Sometimes when I watch TV, I stop being myself, and I'm a star of a series, or I have my own talk show, or I'm on the news, getting out of a limo, going someplace important. All I ever do." is be famous people watch me and they love me and i never grow old and i never die again vanity right and that's, that's almost a perfect encapsulation of what the idea of vanity is which i still think molyneux's definition is the best where it's sort of holding an idea that you're unwilling to test against the real world 
Mm. Right? So people are just like, man, I just love thinking about being famous and everybody loving me and not having to develop virtue or character or personality or anything of value yeah. to other people. People just love me for who I am. It's like, yeah, I can see how that would be appealing. And then right after, it's like, all you have to do is smoke this cigarette or wear this brand of makeup or buy this other product and you'll have the whole world open up for you. It's like, okay, yeah, I can see how that, you know, plays against people's vanity. It perpetuates a delusion. Yeah. Essentially. And something that's incredibly hard to achieve in and of itself. Yeah, and also incredibly tempting, right? It's like, oh, here's everything I could ever want, and all I gotta do is buy this thing. It's like, okay. And you think that's something that would satisfy you in the end, but uh, there's been plenty of books and movies about rock stars and actors and their tragic... You know? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, the way that dopamine works as a motivational system, it's all about the anticipation, right? So the moment you have it, it's just diminishing returns after that, right? It's like, oh, I'm finally famous, and, you know, why do you yeah. have so many famous people that are, like, drug addicts and suicidal and have all these crazy problems, right? And you got to work even harder to maintain the high. Yeah, yeah, constantly chasing something. So, again, it's, if you kind of get out of that cycle and start moving towards something meaningful, that's probably going to be a lot more helpful than moving towards some sort of fake status symbol that the TV told you you need to have in order to be seen as important. Indeed. So, another interesting philosophical idea is called the Hegelian dialectic. Now, this is one way they maintain control by creating problems and conflicts. The people that demand a solution or action to solve a problem. So, there's a problem created, the people react and demand those in power create a solution, then those in power put forth the solution, which was their agenda from the beginning. This is how they get people to willfully accept their wishes. It's a manipulation that people fall for over and over again out of fear, and now more than ever because of herd mentality. So it's basically like a, a problem and solution that was planned from the beginning. Um, in order to make something acceptable. Mm -hmm. So... So I guess, for example, like the, the lockdown situation that we find ourselves in right now, where, you know, you get something that everyone's afraid of to convince people that the government has the right to put an entire country under house arrest whenever it feels like it. And mandate vaccines. Yeah, and a lot of people will crave that subjugation, right? Because it makes them feel safe or important or... Like they're a good person without having to really do anything, right? Yeah, and the idea is this vaccine will save us when clearly that doesn't exactly seem to be the case. No, it doesn't seem to be a cure-all for all the problems we thought it would be, that's for sure. We will see what happens this fall, of course. Yeah. Um, so one other thing we wanted to mention with Plato's work is the divided line. And... I think it's interesting to note that most people live in the world of cause, action, and effects. Really, most live in the world of effects, meaning life just happens to them and they react accordingly. Few think beyond the everyday sense perception of their lives and fewer explore or exert actual action and even less understand the cause of actions. Now, beyond the world of cause, action, effect, the divided line, which then looks at motive and perspective... Those that control have a motive to maintain their position of power. Maintenance of power is all that matters to them. Therefore, everything they do is motivated to maintain that control. 
Their perspective is that they are sovereigns or supreme, a special class of people, that they are, quote, sophisticated. And because of their status or birth rate, they believe that they have the right to be in the power and control. It is all a made-up story and lie, of course, but they can actually get people to believe or at least accept sometimes through fear that there are powerful people um, in control. And again, with COVID, the overall agenda is population control. The problem is a deadly virus. The reaction is to do something to stop people from dying from the virus, which is very few in the context of real threats to human health. The solution actually selectively kills and destroys more people than the virus. Not to mention that the virus was man-made to begin with and strategically released. The way one hides a conspiracy is an open sight. All human endeavors by nature are conspiracies to produce a predetermined agenda in the future. And this is basically they live. They live, we die. That is essentially what's going on if you look at Obama's birthday bash. They live while the, quote, unsophisticated are dying from the COVID controls. They all fly their private jets to a big party with no masks in the middle of a pandemic, and everyone just accepts that. Well, Tim, remember, this is a sophisticated group of vaccinated individuals, and their sophistication is what protects them from the virus. <laughs> you understand? See, it's only going after the unsophisticated, so as long as the media has labeled you as sophisticated, which I guess is just code word now for anyone that agrees with the media... Uh, yeah, you're fine. You're protected. Yeah, don't worry about that. So in a way, the argument from the elites is, see, the people really are fucking sheep and won't do anything about it. They will accept it, and we can do whatever the hell we want. Proving our point that we are special and deserve to control like the slaves that you are. So, we need to, I think, as a counter to this, push back and you know distinguish what's acceptable and what's not and well it seems like a tough sell I'll be honest with you I mean <laughs> it seems like what everyone believes sort of changes month to month based on whatever the media is saying right so even someone who agreed with you six months ago might not agree with you anymore and then someone who disagreed with you six months ago might be like actually yeah now that I think about it I'm starting to see the patterns a little bit more now so, I don't know, it seems like the, uh, you know, the people definitely give the media a little bit too much attention. You know, well, they'll still kind of report, like, oh, I saw this on CBC, or it's like, okay, yeah, good for you, I guess. The programming is strong. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard to even be mad, because, yeah, it's constant, it's all, yeah, government-funded, it's presented as the absolute truth, so the fact... It is that, quite tiring. <laughs> yeah, it gets exhausting after a while, but the people that sort of still trust it, it's like, yeah, I can see how it's going to just kind of move their opinions like the wind. Well, yeah, and, you know, this is why I respect and admire people like Stefan Molyneux who actually push back, mm -hmm. you know, and who, you know, you know, they f forcefully, but also they really articulate, you know, the bullshit Marxist propaganda that's saturated in our culture and what the implications of their ideas you know, are leading to right. and the they, suffering that it's causing. Because you do start to notice a lot of the patterns, like, guys, the uh, the globe is getting warmer. We have to implement like, socialism right now. Oh, that's not working. Okay, guys, the climate is changing. We need socialism. Guys, there's this crazy virus. We need socialism. It's like, okay, that's your solution to every single problem. I'm just going to stop listening to you about the problem. It's all, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. It's just 
give more power to the government, and then all our problems go away. Yeah, because that's worked every time it's ever been tried, right? All throughout history. All throughout history, yeah. It's always worked, so... But, uh-huh. you know, it's exhausting. It really is. You know, it's it's difficult to keep hammering on this all the time, and nothing ever really changes. But again, if... I'm, I'm kind of being trying to be ambivalent about it, because if Stefan Molyneux, with his three quarters of a billion downloads... If that's not changing it, then what chance do we really have to change it, right? I suppose doing this is mostly for my own conscience to say that, well, at least I said something. You know, put it out there, but I don't really expect it's going to do much. I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's... I don't want to fall into the the trap of nihilism, which yeah. is not, I don't think, what we're we're doing. I think... We can say, at least, like you said, for our own conscience, we are, you know, trying our trying our best to, you know, point out some things that need attention, right? And I think perception, the key part of perception is attention. What are we attending to? What are we paying attention to, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and... But if we are silent, that is another way that we are being compliant, right? So mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's a battle that requires a lot of, you know, energy. And, you know, I, I find myself continually getting angry with more and more things, awful things that are happening. But we, uh, we I think we need to adopt the stoic kind of mindset, which is, uh, attending to the things that are within without our control, with that are with our, within our control, and disting, distinguishing what isn't. Right? Yeah, and I think that's that's a fair point. I mean, as much as I may be circling the drain of nihilism sometimes, it's just <laughs> like, okay, well, maybe just focus on that which I can control and ignore that that which I cannot. Yeah, I, I can see the uh, the wisdom in that. All right, so just before we sign off and return to the spiraling death pit of nihilism. Any uh, concluding thoughts there, Tim? Well, I will put forth the idea that we still need to improve our vision, improve um, our perceptions, and do our best to to again pursue truth. To you know, talk to people around us, find out what they're thinking. Um, you know, continue ask questions, you know, to be, to uphold that spirit of philosophy in order to find out what's really going on in a, in a sea of constant deception and, and propaganda, intentional, you know, intentional lies, right? Because I, I'm very tired of being, being lied to and I want to do my best to express what is morally courageous and what what needs to be done in order to affect the future in a positive way because i'm very tired of people hearing people's cynicism and pessimism it's not it's not productive it's not going to get us out of this mess right and i do but i do understand it i do understand it and i've experienced that myself and um i get it but we, I, I, will, I will promote the idea of, you know, raising our consciousness in order to, um, 
in order to uphold the truth, the importance of that, what, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would say, yeah, know what you can control and what you can't, but also have those conversations with the people in your lives that you're already close to, your friends, your family. If you can't convince them, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to go on the internet and try to convince people who don't even know you. Because it's obviously going to be less effective. Have you guys ever tried to convince anything of or anyone of anything on social media? Like, when does it ever work? It never does, right? Even if you got tacit agreement, like we talked about before, people might just be kind of telling you what you want to hear just so they can move on to talk about something that they would rather discuss. So I would constantly push back, ask questions. Don't take no for an answer in the sense that if they give you just some sort of weak-ass media platitude, push back a little bit, ask them how much they've thought about it. And then once you've got to the point where you realize you've planted that seed, you don't need to keep bashing the dirt and soaking the dirt and all that stuff. Just let the plant grow. Just, take, think... just take a step back, let them think about it. And you'll find the next time you come around and talk to them about these ideas, they're a little bit, uh, I don't know, more open to that discussion because they realize they couldn't come up with a reasonable rebuttal last time. Yeah, I think that's the key. Planting the seed or lighting the spark, mm -hmm. so to say, of curiosity. Yep, there are many metaphors of something small becoming something larger. Mm -hmm. You know, we're getting into harvest season around the garden now, so... It takes time. All those little seeds that we planted are turning into edible fruits, and you'll also notice that more if you're persistent with this in your life, where the people that you're talking to will all of a sudden start to take the media a lot less seriously. They'll start laughing at the headlines and be like, can you believe what these idiots want us to believe? Exactly. And, and then you'll realize the seed is starting to take root. And then you just got to introduce these topics to people one at a time, get them to question what it is that they believe. And uh, I think that's going to be our, our best, most fruitful and most nonviolent path forward because I don't think we're going to get out of this any other way. I agree. Well said. Okay, well, uh, once again, guys, thanks so much for taking the time to tune into this episode of The Sorted Skeptics. Like, share, and subscribe, and hit that notification bell wherever it happens to be. And we'll see you guys next time.